up, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Lacrosse Culture Podcast, episode number four. I'm your host, Cody Golan, with me always, co-host Matt Unger. How's it going, everybody? So today we got a little little different podcast for you. Not going to do a top ten list today because there's a lot going on in, in the college lacrosse. Uh, the big thing right now going on was the the start, I guess, if you will, of Hampton University, a historically black college. They had their first game this, this past weekend. Great publicity for the sport. Uh, ESPN was broadcasting live from the game all day. Lots of solid interviews and motivational information coming out. Jim Brown was there giving some some pretty cool speeches. But when we really sit down and look at it, you know, what is the next step for, for a first-year all-black university? Yeah, I mean, definitely, I agree with you. It's a big step for lacrosse in general. It doesn't have to be, you know, African-American lacrosse. It could be lacrosse as a whole. But does it really matter unless something goes forward with it? You know, in my mind, like I said, it's a great thing. They need to win to become important. They need to stay relevant. Otherwise, we're going to, you know, forget about it in three weeks, four weeks, a season from now. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely a great story, but... When, when you really sit down and look at it, you know, they did still lose by 17 goals to a mid-level, maybe even lower-level Division II program. No no small feat for, for a first-year team, but when you look at them and they want to end up being a, you know, prominent Division I program, this is a pretty pretty big step they're going to have to make from, from this first game. Well, part of that is playing a Division I schedule, too. Right. As you mentioned, they made, they played a mid-level Division two team. I think they're playing a lower level Division three team next week in Teal, and that, I think they only have one or two D one games on their schedule at all. Yeah, I saw. I think they play a few more Division two teams, one or two Division three teams, and then I think they play one. I think only one Division one team, and that's at the end of their season. So this first season, they're only playing a, a six, five or six game schedule. I think that actually isn't a terrible idea for a first year program. They're just kind of getting their, their you know their bearings in. They're getting into some competitive games, and then you know, towards the end of the season, they get into some bigger games, and they're going to get a feel for what it's like to have to compete at Division One level with a, a small program, a small team, and it's really going to be about the culture that they're building. For and, and the next recruiting class is going to be probably their biggest step, and, and I think that's a big question right now: is what type of recruiting class can they honestly get? Right. I mean, as we know, it's a historically black college, but that doesn't mean they have to recruit only. Uh, African-American players, they can, they can recruit, you know, uh, white players as well, or the uh, Native American yeah, players, yeah. Canadians. You know, they need the kind of players that lacrosse has all throughout the country. doesn't matter if they're African-American, white, doesn't, any race, any ethnicity. You know, they need a strong recruiting class, like you said. Right. I think one thing, you know, when you look at a team like Michigan, who just switched from club to Division One, I, I think, three, two or three seasons ago, you know, but the difference this is that, their fifth. Oh, is their fifth season? Fifth season, yeah. Okay, wow. So, but when you look at them, you know, they were one of the bigger MCLA programs. One of the best. Yeah, and so they already had some pretty solid talent. Some kids that probably could have went and played Division One, but they just wanted to kind of go to the school at Michigan. So they were playing club, and then whenever it switched over, they still had that you know solid Division One, Division Two talent. You look at the Hampton team. I mean, I'm I'm not sure you know who all they had there. I know they were they had a smaller club program. They're just kind of getting people to, to come there and, and play the sport. But you know, I think when they, it's going to be a harder transition for a team like Hampton than a team like Michigan. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I think Michigan's is such a big name 
throughout the country, probably because of football. You know, we, we know it from the rivalry with Ohio State and things like that. But kids throughout the country want to go to Michigan. I don't know how many kids want to go to Hampton University. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the, the big questions as well is even just talking, you know, African-American players, someone with Division One talent, you know, great stick skills, insane athlete. Are they going to choose to go to, to Hampton and, and try to help boost them up? Or, you know, are they going to still go to a Virginia, you know, Notre Dame, Syracuse, Denver? Are they going to choose one of the bigger Division One schools? Because that's probably where they, they're going to go to get better, if that makes sense. You know what I mean? Are they going to choose Hampton to try to maybe be the guy that brings them to the promised land, if you will? Or are they going to kind of be like, well, I'd rather go somewhere that's already a solid program and that I can get better and help them out? Honestly, I think lacrosse is the perfect sport for that, though. Because we don't have the, the major professional sport leagues, yeah. unlike football or basketball, where kids go to college to prepare themselves for the pros. The college lacrosse is pretty much the apex of a lot of players. That's where they want to be. That's their, that's their goal. And if they can help elevate their school or their race or the game by going to Hampton instead of Virginia, they could. I think a lot of lacrosse players would still do that. Yeah, I think that's a good point. As long as they're competitive. No one wants to go out and get killed every week. You right. know, 20 to 1 or any kind of score like that. I think that's why this this incoming recruiting class for, you know, the fall, this next following spring is probably the biggest one is because if, you know, they really get into a heavy Division One schedule and they're kind of at the same pace they're at right now, I don't know if they're going to be able to continue to get those recruits. Because like you said, even if they don't go from, you know, zero to top 10 team in one season – Recruits still want to see that they're getting better each and every year. Right. And for that to occur, you're going to need to find some of those maybe diamond-in-the-rough type players to come in. Like, you know, the blue-collar type players that come in, they work hard, and, and they can go from someone that maybe was a Division three caliber player. You took a chance on them. You work with them. You build them up. And then before you know it, you know, they're sophomore, junior year. They're a Division one caliber player. I think those are the type of kids they're really going to have to find. Yeah, I mean, if they get the kids that are – Stars at the D3 level, stars at, you know, Salisbury or Tufts or something like that, to come to your school as a Division One player, a lower-level Division One team, right. I think that's really what's going to elevate the program. Yeah. No, I mean, Regardless I of race. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think, like we were saying, they're going to have to find some of, you know, and, and when you look at other teams, too, that are starting out, it's not like they have success, really, in their, their first few no, years. No, absolutely but not. They're going to need to get, you know, some steel, a few recruits, if you will. They're going to need to steal a couple of big wins, you know, they're going to need to make something a statement, something that, you know, they can get out in the news again, because once the story of, you know, the, the being, you know, one of the, this is like the second historically black college or university to, to have a, have a men's division one. First one since the seventies. Yeah. yeah. Since the seventies. Once that story kind of dies down, they're going to need a secondary story of, you know, the first historically black college to beat a big division one team or something along those lines to sort of regenerate that story and, and keep it going. You know, like we said, recruiting classes are almost everything, you know, I mean, aside from just the culture of your team and the coaching, you know, getting those recruits is, is definitely a huge aspect of it. I mean, without the talent, it makes it very hard to win, you know, I mean, absolutely. And talent's everything in the cross. Uh, one other thing that makes me think of it is who else is going to follow them? There's nothing if it's, they're the only ones. You know, they mean we need more historically black colleges or more diverse colleges to join the college ranks of college across. You know, we, we need some of the, the SEC schools. You know, you, you get like a, an Alabama or 
some of the southern schools that really buy into the game of lacrosse, and that builds the entire game up. And that's really what we're trying to do, especially with this podcast, you know. It builds the culture of lacrosse, and it, it can't happen if it's just one team. Yeah, I think we're going to see a lot more teams now moving from the club to Division One, Division Two. some of those bigger schools that have solid MCLA teams, and, you know, they're willing to, to fund the lacrosse program. And then with, with Title Nine, it, it has to work out that there's an equal amount of guys to grow sports. So that's a big deal, too. If they have Division One women's teams, maybe they can get the, the men's team moved to Division One. But you look at, you know, a team like Arizona State and Arizona and, you know, BYU, I think USC just started a club program. I mean, I think that would be huge. Yeah, well, I was even just thinking sort of like out towards the Pac-10 or Pac-12, whatever they are now for football. Change every year. Yeah, but, you know, like USC or someone like that, if USC gets, you know, Southern California gets a lacrosse team, that would be huge, you know. I mean, you look at what Denver did last year out in the West, if you start adding some other, you know, solid big Division One teams with – you know, great campuses and great name recognition, and you know, I'm I'm sure USC or Arizona State can can get a a good MLL player or a solid coach to come out to their you know beautiful California. To I mean, there's plenty team. of talent out there in California from lacrosse. We see people recruiting kids from California all the time. Mm-hmm. Those kids can stay at home and go to a school like you said, like USC or UCLA. Mm-hmm. I, I think they would jump on it. Yeah, I mean, even like a team like Oregon or you know someone else that has a, has a solid club program. You know, right. and, and they're a big Division One school for football and basketball and baseball. You know, they can probably move up and compete in, you know, three, four years in a Division One atmosphere. I think they easily could. I mean, you think of the resources schools like that have Oregon with all that money from Nike. You know, the, just the sheer resources, they could draw a kid away from a Johns Hopkins. Mm-hmm. Why, why go to Johns Hopkins, a small school in Baltimore area, when you can go out to Oregon and live, be a, you know, live on this ginormous campus where – it's your your town, you yeah, know. Right. Johns Hopkins, while they're great for their their academics and they're great at lacrosse, they don't have much um, any other draws really as far as the school. Right. You know, Oregon has the resources, like I mentioned, the funding, they all the gear they could ever want. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's something that could pull kids away from, you know, like I said, the Johns Hopkins and the Virginias and places like that, and really um, make the parity in the college across that much more greater. Yeah, I mean, looking at a team like Hampton starting out here, and then you have a team like Michigan that that made the transition. I mean, when we look at it, what's realistically, you know, how long does it take for a team to move into Division One and actually be able to compete? I mean, I think if you're looking at even just competing, it's going to be three, four years. I think it's compete. a full recruiting class. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah, that that four years getting. Getting fresh a freshman recruiting class and having kids stick with it all the way to their senior year is huge. But you know we can we can start with this. But then even if you're looking at like when can you really get into like a national championship caliber talk? I mean I think that's eight ten years down the road probably. If you know I mean just that's just my opinion on it because you're gonna need a few recruiting classes to come in and be able to compete with you know the top ten top even just the top twenty teams in D one. There's some serious killers in those divisions. It's because I mean they're always the same. You know, they always get the top, same top 20 teams, get the top 20 kids, you know, so get a new program in there. It takes a lot of planning. It's a very much a long-term plan. It takes a big commitment, not only from the players, the coaches, but the school. We don't see this so much in college across where coaches get fired left and right. We do a lot in college football. Like, if, if you figure an athletic director runs a college football team that changes coaches every three years because the team's not winning, 
if you had that in college, the cross, and a team that is trying to build, they they'd never get off the ground. Yeah. You need a solid foundation that is in for the long haul, and is willing to work on it day after day after day, year after year. You know, cause like you said, it is going to take time. It's going to take eight years to become a contender, right. and that's if everything goes right. Right. And I think you know we saw in these interviews and all the ESPN coverage that you know Hampton did get. The guy that they're probably, you know, they probably need the guy that they're looking for. He seemed like a solid guy. He was on a similar program. I think they were Division Two, the team he played for. Yeah, Morgan State. Yeah, I think Morgan State, Division Two. Um, you know, and then when you look at a team like Michigan, you know, he was the club coach for a while. They won an MCLA championship, maybe a couple, I could be mistaking. And, you know, he's all about building up the culture. He's all about starting it right, making building their relationships first with his players and then and then he'll go from there and obviously they have the resources at Michigan to, to get players there. But for a team like Hampton, I mean, it, it might be a, a long time. And now that I'm thinking about it and we're talking more, I think, you know, even if, you know, next season they have half Division One, half D2, D3 schedule, and then, from you know, the third year they have, you know, three-fourths D1 and a fourth D2, you know, kind of maybe not necessarily, you know, helping them win, but – Putting them in situations where they can compete because, you know, no, no one really wants to go anywhere where you're just getting blown out every single week. No, absolutely not. And my point about the adding more D1 games was not so they get blown out every week. Yeah. It's so that they rise to the level of their competition. Right. If you're playing lower-level D3 teams, even if you're not winning, you, you're competing every time, and it's not really getting making you better. Right. If you play against, you know, some of the top-level teams in the country, while you may be getting blown out 20-1, to 1, they're pushing you to be your best. Yeah, and to really grow the program, you need to do that week after week, you know, to grow for long term. Yeah, I'm just thinking, you know, maybe slowly add in more and more Absolutely. of those yeah. games. You know I, would, I, mean? I wouldn't go for a full 16-game schedule yeah. of, you know, Virginia and Duke and Maryland and everything like that. Now, I haven't seen anything about, uh, and we can maybe look this up, but what, like, conference they're going to be in. Have you heard anything about that? I have not, uh I mean, I'm assuming that next year it's probably going to be a, a full slate Division One schedule, unless they're they're thinking along the same lines we are, where they're going to maybe do like half Division One or half, you know, half and half, half D two D three schedule, and then half Division One, or maybe they're going to schedule some bigger games. Um, hopefully, they play sort of like the lower end teams in Division One, so that they're competing. But I haven't seen anything about as far as what conference they'll be in, or if there will be like an independent team or something like that. When we talked, we, something I want to talk about now, dealing with Hampton Lacrosse, and it was mentioned in the ESPN broadcast, none of this would have been possible without like the Harlem Lacrosse movement we see in New York, or the Brooklyn Lacrosse movement, even down in Baltimore, there's a, uh, it's, I think it's called Charm City Lacrosse. The diversity in lacrosse is growing greatly, especially at the youth level, which is where it needs to start at, you know, you need to build that foundation. But I, and I think uh, on ESPN, Paul Carter said this, that without those movements, this Hampton team wouldn't have happened. So... I think we we talked about in previous episodes uh, the culture of the cross and in the youth game, and I think uh, this really enforces those points that we need to build from the youth up. Yeah, yeah, no, I definitely agree. I mean, I think I don't think anyone's going to argue that the publicity from this isn't going to going to benefit the game. You know, if there's a younger African American kid was watching, just happy watching ESPN. You know, maybe he never even ever heard about lacrosse before, and he was just trying to watch football highlights or basketball highlights or you know golf highlights, whatever sport he, he was playing, you know, and then he sees this team starting out and, and everyone, you know, the culture of the game and everyone's really loving the fact that, that this team's starting out and, you know, the university was rallying around them and all the ESPN analysts were 
were pretty psyched up about it. So he hears about the game of lacrosse. Maybe he tuned in to watch the game. You know, saw how fast paced it was. How you know how much everyone was really enjoying it. How you know diverse the game itself is and the the passing, running, shooting, hitting. It's a it's a mixture of so many other great sports. Uh, you know, and he decides, hey, you know what? I'm gonna go out and get a get a stick at my like local sporting goods store, and then from there he finds a a youth program or a middle school program in his area, and then you know that could mean a lacrosse player for life. And you know, six years down the line, he might be in you know Hamptons, you know, absolutely next recruiting class, and he could be the one that you know pushes them, you know, into that you know hunt for being a top 10 program or top 20 program. Yeah, even uh, Coach Carter there at Hampton, I saw online that he used to coach the the travel club team Black Blacks out of the Baltimore area. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I've known it growing up how the strong program it was. Yep. You know, he's always encouraged African-American children uh, or even white kids that they were on his team too, mm. you know, to get into the game, enjoy the game, help grow the game, and that's really what's pushed for a team like Hampton, like you said. Yeah, no, I mean, I really don't think there's any question about it that, you know, it's – Great for the sport, and hopefully more and more teams follow. So, yeah, we just looked up, and we saw that, what's the, what's the name of the conference? The MEAC, but what does that stand for? Uh, Mid-Eastern Athletic Conference. So that's the conference that they're going to be in. They're actually the only team in that conference currently. For men's lacrosse. They have other women's lacrosse teams. And then they'll have the option of moving into a different conference with, with Air Force, and that's your Richmond's in there. Richmond, yeah. It's like... The, they're uh, in a logical geographical area okay. for the same uh, conferences, like you said, Air Force, Richmond. Yeah, so so that conference will probably be a little better for them to move into than like the Big Ten or something. But for now, they're in a conference by themselves, so pretty much like an independent team, I would say, as far as the cross. I would goes. say at this point, yeah, yeah. So that's probably good for them, and I think you know that 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 could help them in the long run. And eventually, they're going to get the good competition that they're going to need to be prepared to to go against, like we've been talking about. I mean, that about wraps up our topic of Hampton Lacrosse and how it's growing the game. I think it's great for our culture, diversifying. It's something the game definitely needs to do. And I wish the you know, Hampton Lacrosse program the best of luck. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think, like, we, like we've said, great publicity for the sport. You know, great story. It was great to see all the interviews and, and the live coverage and, and everything that we were was being shown on ESPN. But I think for sort of maybe the last five, ten minutes here, we're going to just get into the Division One Toraton watch list and just some of the players that – you know, I've been in some of the magazines and have been online and then maybe some honorable mentions that we think, you know, have a shot to maybe break in this season. But, um, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, for you, anyone that doesn't know, the Toraton is like our Heisman. Right. And it's our play of the year. It's given out at um, the all levels, the Division One, Division Two, Division Three, and at uh, both men's and women's lacrosse. I think today we're going to talk about Division One lacrosse only, and especially the men's game. That's what we know most about. So, but, well, yeah, so I think just to sort of clear up, I think anyone can be chosen from Division One, Division Two, Division Three, but there's only actually one right, award. Yeah, just, just, no, just, I just want to make sure, in case, you know, someone's not familiar with the award or just kind of getting into lacrosse, I think, you know, number one right now in everyone's mind, it was in uh, Lacrosse Magazine, and, and I've seen it online a lot, and, and I think it's, it's a pretty solid choice, but Miles Jones, midfielder from Duke. Is I think he's definitely the favorite right now. Definitely a favorite right now. He's an absolute freak athlete. He's 6'5 or 6'6, like 230 pounds, and runs like you know no one you've ever seen on the lacrosse field. And he's just a physical player. 
he's a huge presence. He's constantly demanding a double team and beating that double team. Yeah, and and pretty consistently beating that double team. And then you know at Duke, obviously he has great coaching and uh, you know great players has, around him. Great too. players around him. So I think right now he has to be probably the favorite. Um, I think other people might get bigger stats than him, but I think sometimes they take into consideration the the presence you have on the field and and also usually how far you can go into the playoffs and, and, and how, how serious your team is, you know, obviously it plays a huge role as well. So I think Miles Jones, number one. I mean, we, were, we were talking off air about this. Uh, Miles Jones started out as a defensive midfielder for Duke his freshman year. You know, his very first shifts were deep mid. You know, what kind of what other player really has that versatility on the field? He could literally play the entire game, any position you wanted to, and he would dominate. Yeah, I mean, if, if you look at him right now, you know, he's, like you said, he could he could probably pick up a long pull and play deep pull if he wanted. He's obviously a solid D midi. All, he's an all around midfielder, and you know, I mean, if they wanted to put him at attack or something, I'm sure they could do that too. I mean, he he's extremely well versed. He's one one of the better athletes we've seen. It, well, especially just size wise. Uh, you know, he, I believe he was a big basketball player in, in high school, and you know, he he plays huge on the field, and he always seems to be, and he's enjoying the game too. And if you look at him and follow him on social media and stuff, he's he's always trying to help out kids and stuff like I that guess. in the summers, and he's coaching and just having a great time. You can just tell by watching him; he enjoys playing the game. Mm-hmm. You know, like he he just looks like he's having fun out there. Big sellies. <laughs> I think moving on to probably our our next contender. Yeah, it's at number two. Connor Canizero from from Denver. A solid year last year, you know, obviously won the national championship with him. Returning, coming back, you know, great coaching staff there. Great, great players returning. Great fast-paced, high-intensity, very interesting and different style offense. A lot of people don't play against very often. He's definitely going to get his looks. He's going to get his goals. And then, you know, obviously he's going to he's gonna draw attention and then he's going to feed it. And, you know, he's, he's a great feeder as well. So I think in an overall point aspect, whether he has more assists or more goals, I don't think it's really going to matter. It's going to be a high number both ways. Absolutely. I think the biggest question with him, though, is last year his running mate was the Torreton winner. You know, everything's now going to be on his shoulders. Last year's uh, Torreton winner graduated. You know, he went on to play in the box league, I believe. And now it's all on Connor Conzero's shoulders, basically. He is the force for Denver. Um, but I, I do think, he's gonna, like you said, he's going he's gonna to do great, whether it's assisting or getting goals or doing anything his team needs there on the offensive end. Another big point for him is he's going to have the ball a lot. Uh, Denver's face-off guy, Trevor Baptiste, I believe, he led the nation in uh, face-off percentage last year. So his, his team's going to have the ball in, probably in his hands an awful lot of the time. Yeah, I mean, possession's everything, and... You know, when you're an offensive player, especially in a, in a high-paced offense with a lot of guys that are threats, you know, and you're sort of the leader of that group, you know, and you have, you know, twice as many possessions as the other team, it's it's obviously just going to put you, put you in position to, to get great stats and then obviously boost the team, which which helps in the Torton watch as well. Absolutely. I think number three, you know, he's been a solid player here. Tons of game winners. Great leader, tons of energy, just like these first two guys, Matt Cavanaugh from Notre Dame. I mean, he's just been an all-around great player. He's been a, a highlight reel for, for the past few seasons. I think his stats were down a little bit last year due to some injuries, but 
coming into his senior year here. They're ranked number one in the nation. They have a bunch of threats all over the field, and you know he's a very unique player in the way he shoots and dodges and the things he can do. So I see him putting up a, a bunch of huge stats, just like he has been in the past, and and I see him being a continual threat. And you know if if they go as far as everyone sort of projects them to go. I don't see why he's not going to be in the you know the top three or four in in this race towards the end of the year. Yeah, like I said, uh, the biggest thing with Kavanaugh though, like you mentioned, coming back from injury, like last year he was he was down a bit with his statistics. He was hurt a good portion of the year. You know he played through a lot of that pain, but he was still injured. Uh, can he come back to his uh, freshman or sophomore year stat level? Uh, I think I think he can personally. I I think he's the best quarterback out there on the lacrosse field of anyone in the country. He is that calming force for Notre Dame. Anytime things get get rattled or unsettled, you know, you get him the ball and he'll he'll handle it. You know, he'll put the team on his back anytime it's needed. He usually delivers. Yeah, and I mean, just going along with that too is just you can always tell on the field that he's just bringing a ton of energy. Uh, I'm trying to think. I think they were playing North Carolina or someone last year, and it came down to like the final few minutes. I could be mistaken on the game, and it was a, a big home game at Notre Dame, and. You know, he was just, the whole crowd was into it. He was getting fired up. You know, he had big goals at the end of the game, like he's always been doing his entire career. And he just brings that energy to the team. And I think, you know, you can always tell that after after a huge goal, he's always the first guy celebrating with his teammate. He's, he's definitely a team player. And, and I think the guys really respect that. You kind of mentioned that he's the, the quarterback of the team, you know, and you think he's the best quarterback. I think if, if anyone's going to compete with that, I think Dylan Donahue from Syracuse, attackman you know he, he's really a quarterback out there he always getting a ton of assists and, and they so far this season they've been have just their offense looks on point and, and he's definitely the leader of that offense so I have him as sort of like my fourth option but he's he's definitely a quarterback there and he can definitely get those stats and you know I wouldn't be surprised if he has an insane amount of assists maybe more assists than goals this year the only thing I think would hold uh, him back is he's gonna get the recognition that Kavanaugh gets mm-hmm. Kavanaugh's a known commodity. You know, he's done it every year. He's played at Notre Dame the past four years. And Donahue, while he's great, nothing against him, he just doesn't get the same recognition that uh, Kavanaugh gets, which is probably going to hurt him in the voting. Yeah, and I think, you know, it always depends on sort of those big games, too, and, and the big moments that happen this season. And that's something that, you know, we obviously can't plan right now. But, you know, he might not be a huge name now, but one or two huge games on, you know, televised games or something like that, I think he could always boost that stat up. And when they see him really being the, the controlling force out there for Syracuse and in a few of these big games, I think that can really help help boost him. But, yeah, like you said, it will be tough for him to, to compete against, you know, the likes of Kavanaugh or Canizero or any of the other big-name guys. Um, but, you know, he's definitely an awesome player. And, and statistically, um, you know, I'm expecting him to be amongst, you know, the best this on, season. On the top, yeah. Uh, so I think, you know, those are sort of our top four on the watch list, but a few uh, honorable mentions. I think the one I had, and we already have a guy on our list from Notre Dame, but Sergio Perkovic from, from Notre midfielder from Notre Dame, huge player, just an absolute cannon of an outside shot. And, you know, he's had some huge, huge games in the playoffs that have really boosted his, uh, I think they call him the Motor City Hitman or something like that. <laughs> he's, you know, really just boosting his notoriety, if you will. And a lot of people really got to know him when, you know, you're scoring four, four, five goals in, in the fourth quarter of games and, you know, the playoffs against Denver, that really gets the notoriety out and kind of gets that, that myth of you being this awesome player out there. So I think he's going to have a huge season. Kavanaugh is going to be drawing a lot of attention and feeding him. And, 
doesn't matter where he's at on the field, he can rip a shot and be that stretch shooter that, you know, they're probably going to help boost each other's stats working together. So. All right. Pergovic, a couple games last year in the playoffs, I've never seen anything quite like that. You know, I've watched the playoffs every year since I started playing the game, and I've never seen performance in those those games that he built together in the playoffs there. I think he can definitely build on that this coming season. You know, like you said, Kavanaugh's going to be feeding him a lot. A lot of outside shots for him, shots on the run. You know, I think he's definitely someone to watch out for. Yeah, I mean, we've seen two guys from the same team in the in the race, you know, with the Thompson brothers. You know, they both were in the Toriton race, and then, you know, I think it can, that might be something we see again in Notre Dame. Or there's, you know, there's multiple guys on every team that are, always have the opportunity to to get in the race. But I think another guy that I had, just as an honorable mention here, wrapping up, I got two more guys on my list. Uh, Ryan Brown from Johns Hopkins. I mean, if, we say, if we're saying Perkovic has an absolute candidate of a shot, Ryan Brown probably has the nicest overhand shot. Sidearm, underhand, he can shoot all different ways. Extremely accurate. Uh, 61 goal scorer last season. Probably going to have similar stats. I think, you know, his first game of the season, he had six or seven goals in it, which is just an insane number for a Division One team. You know, he's going to draw a lot of attention, and then when he does, like, you know, similar to these other guys, they're going to make you pay as well with, you know, the Stanwicks of the world and, you know, all the other guns they have at Hopkins. So he's, he's another stretch shooter. But he's also, you know, been working a ton on his inside game, a ton on his feeding. So if he can get his assists up close to his goal totals this season, I think he'll have an insane amount of stats. Absolutely. Quick question for you. Who's the better shooter, Perkovic or Brown? <sighs> better shooter? I always go accuracy over speed, so I'm going to go with Brown. Uh, I think Perkovic's the harder shot, and he's definitely getting more accurate with it. I- I'd love to see him get clocked sometime soon, but as, as far as – the the variety, the option, I think Brown probably has the nicest game, nicest shot, excuse me, in, in the game right now. Yeah, I mean, I think as far as the Toriton watch list, there's two are definitely the ones compared to each other the most. You know, they're very similar, like you said, outside shooting abilities. So I think one's going to have to knock the other one off. It's probably in a head-to-head game. Yeah, and then the last one I had, smaller school guy, but they're, they're getting up there in the top ten this season is Dylan Malloy from Brown. 62 goals, 30 assists last season. They play a, a really fast-paced offense. Every one, every one of the guys on their attack is getting a ton of ton of stats. You know, and if he has a has a similar year or a better year this season, then I don't see why he couldn't be in in, in the list. But obviously, there's some huge guns from some huge teams on this on this uh, Toriton watch list we have right now. Going to be hard for him to crack it, but they pull off a few big upsets, and he's the main reason. You never know what can happen. Right, like you said, their pace of play, it's so incredible that his stat line's going to be off the charts. Like you said, he's probably going to lead the country in goals again, have a ton of assists. You know, So his stat line's going to be incredible. It's something that needs to be watched out for for Toyota. For me, as a defensive player, I like to focus on the college defensive players, and Matt Landis is the perfect college defenseman right now. And a lot of people say it's scheme. Yes, Notre Dame has a great defensive scheme. They have a great game plan every week. Their coaches put them in the position to win. But a lot of what Matt Landis does is talent, talent alone. You know his footwork ability is unbelievable. You know his turn, his uh, forced turnover ratio, or or his uh, goals allowed ratio, they're off the charts. He is the absolute perfect college defenseman. He's not the most physical guy, but he has no problem laying into you or sliding to you on on a slide or anything like that. There really is, I don't, that I see watching games on TV or on, online, there really isn't much flaw to his game. He's the smartest person out there in the field. He communicates well. You can hear him through the broadcasts. 
You know, I think Matt Landis needs to be uh, on the list. However, you know, defenseman off, you don't get that that award, wherever, however, for whatever reason that might be. But uh, I think he needs to be. He's deserving of it. Yeah, I mean, I think there's no question that he's you know he's gonna be a game changer, and I think you know other positions need to start getting a little bit more recognition. I mean, obviously sometimes the the flashier players get win the awards, but you know you look at a deep pool, or you know, I'd love to see a goalie get in there, and then you know these past few few years, few seasons, the faceoff position has been huge. I'd you know love to see a, a just dominant faceoff guy get in that hunt too. I mean, like you mentioned, possessions uh, everything from Denver there. Yeah, I mean possessions everything. There's a few great faceoff guys, and with, without them dominating, you know it, it's hard to say if, if the team would be as good as they really are. And That's whenever right. those guys go down and they get hurt, or you know something happens where they can't play. Oftentimes you see that team start to struggle more than they used to because, you know, the possessions aren't coming as easily as they were. So I think uh, sort of wrap that up. So we'll just run through that real quickly again for the Tourton watch list. We had number one, Miles Jones, two, Connor Canizero, three, Matt Cavanaugh, four, Dylan Donahue. Then our honorable mentions were Sergio Perkovic, Ryan Brown, Dylan Malloy, and then Matt Landis as well. So, you know, if you guys have anything else to add, please hit us up on Twitter and, and tell us who you guys got. And if you have any other, you know, information or, or questions about, you know, regarding Hampton, hit us up on Twitter as well. It's uh, at the Lax Culture. Or if you just search the Lacrosse Culture, it comes up as well. Give us the follow. Feel free to, to hit us up on there. Uh, you know, right now we just wanted to sort of go over some things that were going on on Twitter with us. You know, this is sort of our, our first week or two, two on Twitter right now. So, Shout out to at knuckle underscore puck 87 for the first mention on Twitter. He was listening to the podcast, mentioning that he loved it. And then shout out to at NJ Golan. He, he hopped in the conversation on our, our podcast about pregame rituals. And, and he was mentioned he used to listen to, to Tim Tebow speeches pregame. So, <laughs> so uh, kind of a funny one there. But shout out to both those guys for, for tweeting at us and you know, continuing to join the conversation. So uh, feel free to, feel free to hit us up on Twitter if you guys got some more information for us or really anything dealing with lacrosse or, or cool, cool articles or stories that you think we might want to talk about on the podcast. You know, feel free to hit us up. Uh, as always, you know, also go uh, check out the blog, www.thelacrosseculture.blog.wordpress.com. We got some more information in, in the blog about Hampton on there, some cool stuff about coaching, cool stuff about playing and, and getting underway with the season and then you know we're going to be getting some more stuff out about gear and so if you guys have stuff that you think might be be cool to go up on the blog feel free to free to hit us up on there or you know send it to us via the twitter yeah we want to hear from you guys yeah so i mean that's that's pretty much all i got i think it was a solid episode uh, a little bit different than, than the lists so you know hopefully you guys enjoyed it and you know like i said feel free to join the conversation and that's the lacrosse culture thanks guys here we go yo here we go yo Like we'll help you get your Z's true. But here's the real scoop.